Well, no, Pastor Jeff, welcome you this morning, uh, but I have the opportunity to welcome you again. So, uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to Christ Community Church. My name is Sean, and I have the privilege of bringing to you um, a message this morning. And uh, just thank you for being here. Maybe you're a regular or a guest, or maybe you're just trying to escape the heat because we have some nice air condition. Uh, we're just thankful that you're here. Um, look, if you're a person who enjoys coming to Sunday morning gatherings because you enjoy being encouraged or uplifted or leaving on a, a note of positivity for the week, then you might have picked the wrong Sunday morning today. Because today we read a story where a couple of individuals commit some sin and pretty quickly and immediately they are dead, okay, just like that. And as I try to make sense of this story, um, I think what God has at least laid on my heart to share with you is uh, addressing the issue of idolatry um, in our lives, in the life of the church. And so stories about people dying as a result of sin and stories or in, in the appro- or just challenging idols, uh, I know is not always fun. So that's my disclaimer. Uh, I'm going to read the text and I'm going to pray and I'll pray extra long. If you want to leave, no one's looking, no judgment. You could walk on out, but it's hot outside, um, so you might want to stay. But uh, we pick up in Acts chapter 5, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 16. We've been on a journey the last few weeks as a church family going through uh, the book of Acts, and I'm going to sort of recap the first four chapters in a little while, so I'm not going to spend time right now doing that, but let's just pick up Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Uh, Verse 1 says this, excuse me. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrive this deed in your heart. You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest there joined them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for 
the scriptures which we can read and, and just try to understand. God, uh, give us wisdom and discernment as we um, consider this passage for some time this morning. Um, Father, help us as we just sang a song about our lives not being our own, that we belong to you. Let that be just the cry of our hearts uh, this morning. Allow us to see uh, the parts of our lives where maybe we haven't fully let go and surrendered, the parts where maybe it's out of fear or uh, just for the sake of not wanting to be uncomfortable, we've held on to and we need to release those to you, God. Today, you want to remove these things from our lives. You want to move in such a way, God, that you and you alone uh, get all the glory. And for that to happen, God, we need to have lives that are surrendered to your son's lordship. So Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I pray this morning, God, that we would leave as changed people, not because of anything that I have to share or say, but because of your spirit um, that is in us and, and wants to see us be uh, changed more into the image and likeness of your son. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, it looks like everyone's still here, so that's good. Um, I want to share another story with you. Uh, similar type story, different kind of outcome. Um, this is a story about an Oregon couple. Uh, this happened a few years ago. And they were a young couple uh, in love, good marriage. They were a Christian couple. They were following Jesus. And they had a couple of small kids. And they were at a place in life where they were ready to build their dream home. And so they set out to do that. Uh, they spent a year uh, building, or over a year building and constructing this house, kind of planning every detail. And then finally, when the house was finished, uh, they moved into this uh, beautiful home, which was in an upscale neighborhood, and they were enjoying life in this place. While they were there, they started reading this book by Richard Stearns titled The Hole in Our Gospel. And upon reading that book, the Spirit of the Lord moved in their lives to uh, challenge them to begin considering how can they give financially to those who are in need exceedingly more than what they currently were giving. As they assessed their current life status, they realized that a majority of their finances were tied up into mortgage payments and just expenses related to this new home. And so after praying about it, almost a year to the date of moving in, they sold their house, uh, moving to a, a much less affluent neighborhood. In the process, they gave up about 1,000 square feet of living space. They also uh, gave up a master bathroom attached to their master bedroom, so they were sharing a bathroom there with their children. And maybe even more significantly, at least for us, they gave up a home that had air conditioning for one uh, that did not. But in the process of this, they were able to slash their home-related expenses by 75%. And over the last few years, what this couple was able to do uh, is they've gotten to a place where they've been able to give away about half of their income, which they estimate to date to be about $500,000. And we hear a story like that, and we're moved by it. We're inspired by it, maybe even challenged by it. And we look at this couple, and we hold them up, and we're like, that's a great example of living selflessly and being generous. And I see that story, and I, then I hold it up to the other couple that we just wrote about, Ananias and Sapphira, and I don't know that I see a whole lot of differences. On the surface, they both sold some property and land they, gave, they had, and they took the proceeds and they gave a lot of that to the church. But in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't really live to tell about it kind of interesting when you just consider these two things. You know, in the United States, 
um, the leading cause of death in both men and women is heart disease. Uh, in fact, uh, someone in the United States has a heart attack every 40 seconds, and someone dies every 33 seconds from uh, a heart-related illness. Uh, and this is costing the, uh, well, costing the United States an estimated $240 billion per year. This is all um, according to the CDC. And that's talking about physical heart failure, but the type of heart failure that I want to talk to us about this morning is a spiritual heart failure. <laughs> Titled the, this message, Cause of Death, uh, Heart Failure, because I believe that's what Ananias and Sapphira were suffering from. And if I think about it, sometimes I think maybe this type of spiritual heart failure might be more prevalent in the church than the physical heart failures of the statistics that I just read. And so, when I read this text, I just want to share with you how I'm processing it, okay? And invite you in to kind of process this story with me. Um, I read this text and I have a lot of questions. Um, I generally just want to know, how much did they sell the field for? Right? Like, what was the sum of money? Like, it doesn't really say, uh, but it was a piece of property. And you guys know, property is expensive, right? So you, you would assume that it was a, a pretty significant amount. And then when it said that they kept half, it gave half to the church, what was that amount? Right? Like, I, I want to know these numbers. Maybe we don't know the numbers because in our legalistic tendencies, we'll peg that as the number that we need to give away if we were to maybe do something like this. I also feel like what Ananias and Sapphira did on the surface was admirable. And you look at it and you're like, they gave half of what they sold away to the church. That's a beautiful thing. So God, why did they need to lose their life? Why did you take this so seriously? Why what was their life something that had to be given up because they didn't go all in on this? I also kind of wonder, were there any other stories of people just dropping dead at this time uh, because of sinful behavior? These are just things that I kind of question as I'm reading the story. And I, I may never know the answer to these questions. We may never get the answers to these questions. But the one question that kind of came up as I was reading this text, and it was really more of a personal question. It's a question I want to challenge you with this morning. And, and all things that I'm about to say, I want you to keep this question kind of in the forefront of your thinking. It's this, is what are the things that you give your life away to? Because in this story, Ananias and Sapphira gave their life away to certain things, right? On the surface, they have money they got from selling this field, they were kind of half in with the church, maybe. If you go by, they gave half to the church. So half their life, maybe they were giving away to God's mission and his church. But the other half, they were giving away maybe for their personal gain, right? And so there's three ways I wanna, want us to look at this story. First, I want us to look at the story with no context, just the story, right? Forget where it's happening, when it's happening. If you look at just the story, we kind of look at it one of two ways. If you're a glass kind of half full person, then you're going to see this story and you're going to be like, they were pretty generous. They gave away half of the proceeds from this sale. I don't understand what the big deal is. That was a pretty amazing thing. That's what we say about the Oregon couple, right? If you're a glass half empty kind of person, what you say is that they selfishly kept from God what was his to begin with. And we all have a tendency to allow selfishness to creep in. Just on the car ride over here, our kids are in the back seat and my daughter's looking at her brother. And for whatever reason, she feels it her need to tell him in this moment all the things in the house that are hers, right? <laughs> and she's going through all the things in her toy room. Bubba, you know, this is mine. 
this is mine. This, and she's just rattling it off. And I kind of just stopped her and I said, Jay, you really think like you own all that, right? And she's like, yes, it's mine, you know? I'm like, baby, you have these things because mommy and dad allow you to have these things, right? And in the same way, we have a generous father that allows us to have things. He blesses us with gifts. He gives us gifts. And for us to look at things selfishly and say that this is mine, it's kind of childlike. And so maybe that was at the heart of what was going on here with Ananias and Sapphira. The other thing I kind of wonder, you know, a lot of questions, but was there no other way to, to fix this? Like, did it have to be death, right? Did they have to just be killed in the moment? The story with no context, it kind of leaves us with more questions than answers. But what happened is consistent with the character of God. If you remember, there's a story back in the Old Testament Testament of Joshua. He uh, succeeded Moses as leading the Israelites, and they're moving towards Canaan, this, this land that God promised them. And as they're moving into this promised land, They're fighting battles and they're winning battles. The Lord's blessing them. He's protecting them. He's guiding them into this land. And then they enter into a battle one day and they lose. And Joshua's devastated. He's wondering why, what just happened? Like, we're on a winning streak, right? God had our back. He was before us. He's behind us. Why did we lose? And as the story goes, what comes out is that there was a person uh, in the camp of Israel who was disobedient to God. He took some things from the previous battle that he wasn't supposed to take, and he hid those things. His name was Achan, and he buried him in his tent. And Joshua had this moment where he just called all the people of Israel out, and he said, there is a reason we're losing battle. There's sin in this camp. What is going on? And Achan, uh, they find that Achan buried and tried to hide these items. And what happened to Achan? If anybody knows the story, Achan and his entire family were, were brought out and they were put to death. Um, this, this dying as a result of sin is not something new. It's not something that we should be surprised by. This is uh, something that is very serious to God. These matters are important to him. They should be important to us. And so, again, this question, I'm going to keep hitting this question. What are the things that we give our life away to? What are the things that you give your life away to? Let's try to understand this story now in its own context. The first four chapters of Acts really capture this beautiful movement of the church that was started by Jesus. In chapter 1, we see Jesus really um, sort of commissioning his disciples to go be witnesses uh, to the ends of the earth. That's where we get the title of the sermon series. And then Jesus ascends into heaven, and the disciples are are ready to go. But before they go out in chapter 2, as they're praying, as they're replacing Judas, as they're uh, doing these things uh, trying to just get ready for this commissioning, the Spirit of God comes down in Pentecost in chapter 2. The Spirit of God is uh, promised by Jesus in the Gospels. He is the helper, the one who uh, is going to come and fill the followers of Jesus and allow them to do things that are even greater uh, than what Jesus said he did. And it's through the Spirit of God that the apostles had power, and we see this happening. By the way, Peter, just a common, ordinary dude, begins preaching in boldness. And through his words, people are coming and being called into salvation. The end of chapter 2, we see Peter deliver a sermon and thousands are saved. We also see the church beginning to form. Uh, Christian did a great job a couple weeks ago talking about the community that the early church shared with one another. We get a glimpse of that in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, we see Peter and John just on their way to go pray. And they run into a lame man who's been paralyzed and he's begging for money. 
And Peter and John say, we can't give you money, but we can do something even greater. And through the power of the Spirit, they're able to heal this man. And that kind of creates a commotion. And then Peter and John are arrested. Persecution happens. But through all of that, Peter is again able to preach. And again in chapter 4, as he's given a defense for the gospel, thousands more are being saved. Um, And then we read at the end of chapter 4, like I said, Christian preached this a couple weeks ago, just the beautiful community that was happening in the church. And so I'm talking kind of fast, but I hope you hear that that's the momentum that's going on, right? The church is happening. It is it is moving. And Jesus' words in Matthew 16 are beginning to become more and more true. He says, Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And Peter was, in fact, a leader of the early church. But then Jesus says this to him, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is protecting this movement from anything creeping in that's going to stop it. And what we read in verses 12 through 16, I'll talk more about this towards the end of the sermon, but as people are being saved, sick are being healed, there's awe and wonder that's happening amongst the community. People are witnessing heaven on earth, what Jesus said to pray for, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The church is happening. But in order for it to be happening, it is an all-in kind of movement. You can't be on the fence. And in this moment, in this story, the urgency of the movement and the movement going forward had no space, no room for a person like Ananias and Sapphira who were wishy-washy, who had one foot in their own kingdom, but one foot in the kingdom of God. And I believe that is what God was kind of stamping out. He was protecting his church as it advanced. He was protecting his kingdom as it came down here on earth. I also want us to look at this story in our own context. I think what we see in the beginning of Acts is that the church was this fringe movement. It wasn't central to culture. It wasn't what culture was kind of shaping its life around. It was kind of happening on the outskirts. The church then, there were still uh, those who were following Jesus were still being governed by an oppressive uh, government that did not recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior. So to be a Christian, there was, there was some consequence to that. If you were proclaiming Christ, there was an element of danger that kind of went with that. And there was a sense of urgency. You couldn't really say, I'm sort of a Christian or I'm not. You either are or you aren't. And it was that clear. But what happened over time, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time breaking this down. You could go uh, read about it. But throughout the last, I don't know, several hundreds and thousands, maybe years of history, church became more central. It got moved from the fringe to the middle. And what you had is like when people would go build cities, they'd build a church building and then build the city around it. And as Christianity became more mainstream, people became more comfortable with this as a faith practice. It wasn't, uh, it didn't carry the weight of saying, I'm following Jesus that people in the New Testament, like the church in Acts maybe um, felt. There wasn't the weight of that. And as people became more comfortable with Christianity, uh, the sacrifice of following Jesus maybe became less and less and less. And I feel like we're at a place culturally where maybe the church is moving back out to the fringes. I don't know if you feel that. Turn on the news, watch what's happening. Like the, the preaching and proclamation of Jesus as Savior is not too popular, right? And so maybe, maybe the, the hope and kind of the silver lining in all this is that as the church moves out to the fringes, just like in the book of Acts where this great movement of God was happening, maybe we're about to see this great movement of God happen again. I want to believe in that, right? 
Do you know in 2021, the Pew Research Center did a poll? How many percentage of Americans do you feel like identified as Christian? This number is kind of remarkable to me. It's at 63%. I feel like that's high. I feel like if you told me right now in a vacuum, hey, there's 63% of America that's Christian, I don't know that I would believe that, just based on what I see, the way we treat one another, the way we talk, right? But that stat speaks to how comfortable people have become with the idea of Christianity. In the new church, in the beginning of Acts, it wasn't comfortable to be a Christian, right? You had to be all in. In fact, I want to read to you what Jesus told his disciples in Luke 14, verse 25 through 33. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him and turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the costs, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So the question again is, what are the things in our life that we're giving our life away to? See, Jesus is very clear here that to follow me is an all-in type of decision. Right? I love the examples. You would never start to build a house and never first you know, assess if you have enough materials to complete the house. You would never go into battle and never first assess your army against the opposing army to see if you had a chance of winning, right? And so what Jesus is saying is don't kind of half-heartedly walk into this. Understand the call to follow me is a complete surrender all aspects of your life. It's nice to think of Jesus as a savior because we enjoy the thought of heaven. But what Jesus is saying is I want to be Lord of your life. I want to rule and reign over everything that goes for our marriages, for our parenting, for our finances, for our vocations, for the way we treat our neighbors. This is what Jesus wants us to lay down for him. And what we see in Acts is the people of God who take on that call to follow Christ. We see the power of Jesus being unleashed through the church. And I believe that today, in order for that same power of Jesus to be unleashed through the church, the kingdom of God needs to be front and center as we reorient our lives around that. Sometimes I feel like the way we sort of approach Christianity and the way that we think about following Jesus is it's sort of just this kind of side dish to the main entree. And the main entree is our life. But what Jesus is asking is that we put him front and center and that he is everything. Our hearts can't be divided with some sort of allegiance to God's kingdom, but then also trying to pursue the things of man. So I'm going to keep repeating this because I want us to be really dwelling on it. Is what are the things that we're giving our life away to? If it's not Jesus and his kingdom, then what you and I are guilty of is the same heart failure that we see with Ananias and Sapphira. Speaking of our hearts, there's a quote made famous by John Calvin. He said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. 
Meaning that we as people produce idols in our heart that take our worship. We, put, we give our attention towards these things. And perpetual meaning that it, it's continuous. Right? And so if we are continuously developing and building idols, then we need to get into the practice of continuously laying down these idols. And recognizing where these things creep up. So this morning what I'd like us to do is just kind of walk through a little activity together. Um, the way in which we're going to do this uh, is we're going to look at uh, an acronym for the word idols. Uh, and this isn't something I created, but I'm a teacher, so I like acronyms because it helps me remember things. Uh, but this is from a pastor. His name is Mark Driscoll. He developed an acronym uh, for idols. And before we get into this, uh, just a few things he says about idols is that, and this is good. This is just good like perspective to think about, Right. Um, we are created beings who are made in the image of God. It means that we, when God designed and created us, we were designed and created to reflect his attributes. So the things that he did, we were created to do those same things, right? And if we think about who our God is, Driscoll says that our God is a continuous outpourer, someone who continuously outpours stuff. But what is he outpouring? He is outpouring his love. He outpours his joy, his peace, his strength, his comfort. He outpours his mercy and his grace. And so if we're made in the image of a continuous outpour, then you and I are also continuously outpouring our lives into things. Right? And so then our lives become devoted to pouring out our lives into someone or something. That means that our worship never starts or stops, that it's unceasing. And so that's why that question, what are we giving our life away to, becomes super important. Really, all of humanity can be divided into one of two categories. We have one category who correctly worships the creator with everything that they have. The second category is the person who worships created things. Idolatry is when we take the created thing that God made and we elevate it to a God thing. When we give our outpouring of who we are towards this thing. We worship created things when we elevate it when we elevate things, we deify it. These deified objects of worship then determine the things that we glorify and the things that we live for. And so this process of pausing and reflecting on where idolatry might be creeping up in our own hearts is just a healthy process as part of confessing sin to the Lord. And so these categories that Driscoll give us, gives us, it, it might not be all-inclusive of every type of idol that exists, but um, they are pretty expansive and they do cover a lot. And so we're just going to walk through each one and give a little explanation on it. We're not going to spend a ton of time. Some of them are self-explanatory. Um, but as we're going through this, again, that question that I asked you to keep in the front of your brains, what are the things that I'm giving my life away to? I want you to be considering that as we walk through these five categories. The first one, uh, the letter I, it's items. Items. Driscoll says items are the public way of projecting our desired image. There's endless examples of this. It includes uh, vehicles or clothes, technology, homes, jewelry, furniture, and it goes on and on and on. But what happens when we pursue items with our worship and, and with our lives, what we begin to do is we um, buy into this worldview of consumerism. And this worldview of consumerism, what it allows us to do or what it pushes us to do is to um, determine our worth and our value by the, the names or brand names of the objects that we buy, right? And so we project this to 
other people, when we surround ourselves with items, items that we pursue, we're giving our life away for status and prestige with other people. The material goods that are so central to who we are now uh, are things that we don't actually own. In reality, they actually end up owning us because they consume our thoughts, they consume our pursuits. And look, it's not bad to own new things or to, to have nice things. That's not what I'm saying. But I would challenge you to evaluate your heart before purchasing things, right? Are you making that purchase because you're trying to validate who you are with that purchase, right? Items have a way of consuming um, just this idea that our worth and value can be, uh, can be satisfied or even determined by the things of this earth when Jesus we know, based on Scripture, he gives us our worth and value. Worth and value is in him, right? So we take in the created thing and worshiping it turns it into a bad thing, an idol. Um, second category is duties. Is duties. Our responsibilities and roles we fulfill become idols when we find our acceptance and belonging in them. This leads to an increased desire to win and compete against others, resulting in a decreased desire to show compassion. All right, so take a person who sees their job and their role and their responsibilities attached to that job as a way to showcase their abilities to others, right? And as you showcase your abilities, what you're doing is you're telling people that I belong here and that you should accept me because I'm competent and can do these things. And so over time, you become consumed with performing excellently or um, you know, hitting all the marks or doing what other people can't do because you don't want to be ignored. But what happens in the process is you become more concerned with you looking a certain way amongst your coworkers or amongst people around you. You become less concerned with loving your neighbor. You begin idolizing just the idea of a duty or a role or a responsibility. This happens also with parents. Sometimes parents can turn their kids into some sort of showpiece that proves to the world how great of a job that they're doing. Right? Think about maybe Facebook posts that you've seen where kids are just kind of exalted. Right? And it's really not about the kid. It's about showcasing how well of a parenting job this person is doing. All of a sudden, it's become less about loving your child and more about loving your image. Right? We can idolize duties. We don't want to pedestal our kids to show others our greatness. We want to love our kids so they can grow closer to Jesus. Right, and so another way these idols kind of creep up. The third category here is others. I feel like this category is pretty prevalent in society today, but it says we're created for relationship and community. Right, that's how God designed us. The Trinity, Father, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God exists in communion. We, as His image bearers, are, exi- are created to exist in community as well. So we naturally gravitate towards those who share the same race, nationality, political affiliation, gender, ethnicity, age, hobbies, income level, theology, and on and on and on. But when the group you connect with becomes an idol, what begins to happen is you start to demonize and dehumanize uh, people in other groups. Again, these idols creep up and it causes us to not love God and not love people well. And so what tends to happen when we idolize groups is that Your group becomes the solution for the world's problems, not Jesus. And if your group's the solution, it means that the other groups are the reason for the world's problems. And so this is how sort of dehumanization 
happens when we start idolizing groups. I'm going to use a silly example, but then I'm going to use a a more serious one. A silly one, and I think I've shared this maybe before, um, is look, in this region, it's very common to find people who are Saints fans, right? Who dat? You say that in public, usually you go to who dat back or something, right? It's very common. That's the group that we identify with. And as a Saints fan, we have a rival, a hated rival. They're just a little further south uh, in the city of Atlanta. And um, the way we sort of attack our rival is we call them names that don't really embrace their humanity. In fact, it chips away at their humanity. And so we have a nice affectionate name for those Falcon fans. We call them Dirty Birds, right? Who wants to be a Dirty Bird? Honestly, like, that doesn't sound too flattering, right? But in a silly kind of way, this is what happens. You elevate your group. It means the other groups are wrong if your group's right. And then you begin to attack other groups to justify your group's position. And so you use words to chip away at their humanity. And you dehumanize them by giving them traits that aren't humane, right? Dirty birds. And so it allows you to see them as less than human, which allows you to see them as objects, which allows them to be easier to not love. That's the process. It's ugly. That's what happens, right? My daughter this summer, a lot, of, a lot of time at home being off from school, and one of the things she's enjoying is just Disney princesses. So we've been hitting up the princess movies. That's always fun. And so um, a few weeks ago, it was Pocahontas that was on. And uh, story of Pocahontas, I'm assuming you know it. I'm not breaking that down. But um, there's a word that European settlers were referring to Native Americans by, and it was savages. And so after a few times, I I hit pause, and I just asked Jade. I said, hey, Jade, you know what that word means? No. So I explained it to her. And I said, how do you think it feels to be called that? Like, how do you think the the Native Americans would feel to be called that word? She's like, probably not that good, Dad. I'm like, yeah, you're right. And so we talked about why it wasn't, uh, you know, right and why they were using that word. And then we continued watching a movie. And then there was this part in the movie where, Uh, like the Native American uh, are kind of rallying their group, and then the European settlers are kind of rallying their group. It's like they're about to fight. And there's a song that starts playing, and there's the chorus of the song. Uh, Europeans are saying, savages, savages, barely even human. And it just repeats over and over and over and over. But I heard that, and I was like, this is exactly what happens when we idolize other groups. When we dehumanize people, we begin using words to chip away at their humanity, and all of a sudden we start seeing them as less than human. And there in a Disney show, it's like laid out perfectly, right? Savages, savages, barely even human. And what happens is when we chip away at people's humanity, they become harder to love. And we tend to forget that all humanity is made in the image of God. And so I just want to ask you, think about the names you use for someone from another generation or political party or gender or race or nationality or sexual orientation or socioeconomic status do those names edify and remind others of our shared humanity? Do those names degrade them, make them feel barely even human? The other thing that happens when we isolate other, or when we idolize others is that we become isolated from other people because of the amount of time we spend with only the people in our tribe or only the people in our group. And by kind of uh, inoculating ourselves and kind of buffering ourselves from other groups, Um, we prevent ourselves from being able to love and serve those in need. We give our lives away to our preferences and our comfort, which limit our ability just to love people well, to love God the way that he calls us to love him. So that's the idol of others. And then 
two more here, the idols of longing and then suffering. Idol of longings. Uh, longings give us hope that tomorrow might be better so we can persevere today. When longings become an idol, they pull us out of the present and misplace our hope in a future that will likely overpromise and underdeliver. If I'm being honest with you, if I look at kind of these five categories, this is the area where if I'm not careful, um, I kind of will begin idolizing my future. Because I'll spend a lot of time thinking about the next three to five years. I, I like to th- be forward thinking. And in fact, I think it's probably a good you know, practice and stewardship. If God asks you to be over things and manage things, you need to have a vision. You need to be thinking about where those things are going to be. And it's good to plan. But if your forward thinking is causing you to become pulled out of the present, where you're not able to love who's in front of you here really well, or if your forward thinking is causing you to become discontent with your present circumstances, then what might be happening is that you're giving too much of your life away to the promise of tomorrow, believing that it can deliver what only Jesus can. So maybe you're a student looking towards that college that you want to attend. There's a longing there. Maybe you're a spouse, or maybe you're a single person who wants uh, to marry that spouse. Maybe you're about to enter into a career and you want that perfect job. Maybe you're in that job and you want that promotion. Maybe you're married and you want those children or just financial stability or a certain status with your health. All these things that are in front of you that you can long for, whatever it might be, if those things are not properly placed, they can become idols as well. And we could trust those things for our hope instead of Jesus. Last thing is sufferings. Suffering is the consequence of living in a world broken by sin. We'll all endure some form of suffering and adversity in our lives. This becomes an idol when we allow our suffering to be the defining characteristic of who we are. The pain and hurt from this form of idolatry paralyzes from serving God and loving others. Look, we're not immune to sufferings. That's part of living, like I said, in this broken world. And whatever your suffering might be, um, don't compare it to other people, right? Because it's yours, and it's valid, and it's real, right? My wife and I are in this season of life that is just exhausting. Um, We have two beautiful kids, but those kids don't sleep. They wake up about two or three times a night, every night, without fail. Uh, We also have a child who, when she is awake, um, she hates being alone and doesn't enjoy silence. So, you know, think about that for a second, right? That's what my days are full of. And then... My wife and I, we both work pretty demanding jobs. We both are in charge of big aspects of a school, of the functioning of schools. We're usually out of the house by 7 a.m. with all four of us in tow, trying to deal with hundreds of people throughout the day just with stuff that comes up. We're lucky if we get back to the house by 5 in the evening. At that time, you know, throw some dinner on the table, clean up, try to hang out with the kids. And then by the time you do bath and bed and all the routines, if you're lucky, it's 8 o'clock and they're asleep. That's like perfect world, right? That's a win. And by that time, we sit across the kitchen table looking at each other like we both just stepped off the scene of Braveheart, you know, just (laughs) depleted and rough. And like there's hardly any energy there to have a relationship. And by God's grace, our marriage is protected and uh, he's sustaining us. But we just live exhausted. And I'm not saying this suffering is like worse than yours, but like if we're not careful, 
what happens is that can become the defining characteristic of who we are. And we can allow that suffering to be an idol. And what we forget is that we have a Savior who understands our suffering because he suffered too. And what we learn in Scripture is that Scripture teaches us that suffering and adversity, they're actually things that help produce in us characteristics that make us more like Christ. And through that, we can have hope through our suffering that this is all part of our sanctification. But if we take suffering and we make it an idol, then what happens is we allow it to be the only way in which we define ourselves. So whether it's that medical diagnosis or loss of a loved one or financial instability, whatever it might be for you, right? We're not, no one's immune to suffering. We need to be careful not to allow that to even get the worship of our hearts. We're going to invite Chris back up here as we close and I don't want to end this on like a Debbie Downer, right? Talking about people dying because of sin and idolatry is not fun, but we have hope. And I want you to understand our hope that Jesus in all of these things, he is better. Because in the story of Acts, once the idol was removed, check out what happened. This is verses 12 through 16. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Regularly done. Signs and wonders every day. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest there joined them. (laughs) You think? (laughs) The people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Believers that we read in chapter 4 shared this selfless, sacrificial kind of community where the love of Christ was flowing between them, where the gospel's being preached, where lives are being changed. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. People were being healed. The people also gathered from the towns in Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. The church was on the move. Once this was taken care of, the church was on the move. And as Jesus promised, the gates of hell would not stand against it. We read in Acts, the church is happening. And I believe today, as it happened then, the same can be experienced by us, but we have to lay down our idols. And so I ask you that question again. What are the things that you are giving your life away to? Jeff preached a message a few weeks ago, and he said, it's mission over comfort. Right? We have to embrace God's mission over our own comfort. And here's the thing about comfort. I heard this a few weeks ago, or a couple weeks ago. Someone was sharing this with me. They said, our comfort zones are great spaces, but nothing ever really grows there. And so we can be comfortable, and we can enjoy it, and this life will be great. There's not a whole lot of growth that's ever going to happen in those spaces. When we commit idolatry, what we're doing is we're chasing our own comfort over the mission of God. And so I want you to spend some moments here just reflecting And I want to invite you into a response. Um, This response, on on the right side of your bulletin, there's some blank spaces here underneath these categories. And as the music is playing and the lyrics are are being sung, these are relevant to what we're talking about, the lyrics in this song. I'm not really, if you want to stand and sing, that's cool. I'd really prefer you just to sit where you are and, and pray through these categories and ask God to reveal to you where in your own heart Are you pouring your life into things that are of this world? Where have you made created things, God things? 
And as God exposes those to you, what I'd like for you to do is to write those things down. It's just confession, saying, Jesus, I want to surrender this to you. I want to lay this down to you. And as you're doing that, there's a second part of this response. And this is not really for first-time guests or guests here today. This is really for the church Christ community. Because I believe that it's healthy for Jeff and for Kerr, the pastors of this church, to know what's in their flock, right? Not in a bad way, not in, I'm going to call you out on it, but in a way that they can pray and shepherd you, right? And so what I would like for you to do, there's a a table in front of me here. Um, There's nothing fancy about it. It is just a table, right? As this song's playing, as God's exposing things to you, as you're writing things down, I want to encourage you to consider doing this. I want you to come forward and physically just lay this down on the table. You don't have to sign your name to it. This isn't, this isn't like you're attaching your name to anything. This could be done anonymously. But the goal of this is to give Jeff and Kerr a, an idea of what they're praying for in their church. Because our heart is to see the movement of God happen through his people as it did in Acts, the same, same way it did in Acts, to see that today. And for that to happen, we have to lay this stuff down. And I want to give our pastors an opportunity to pray over these things. And look, I'm just being real, right? I'm not going to ask you to do something that I myself would not do. I told you that sometimes I can idolize longings. And so I just wrote that I get stuck in the future and it pulls me out of the present. And sometimes it even creates discontentment in my own heart with my current circumstances. So I'm laying that down. I want to give that over to Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to play. And I want to invite you to respond in that way. Jesus, we want to just pause and recognize you as Lord and Savior. Recognize that you are worthy of every part of our life. God, as we say those things, we also say those things believing in the truth of your scripture. That says our identity, our acceptance, our belonging, our significance, all those things are satisfied in Christ. And so where our hearts have gone astray and where we've placed hope in things of this world, where we've deified and elevated objects or people or our sufferings or whatever it might be, where we turned our worship and we're pouring our lives into things that don't matter, I pray that we would surrender those things to you this morning. I want to see a movement in the people of God like what we read about in the book of Acts. I want to see people having their lives restored. I want to see people having futures that have hope. I want to see healing. I want to see redemption. There's nothing in this world that's going to provide that. So help the allure and the attraction of this world fade away. Help us to be completely satisfied in you, Jesus. God, I thank you for the people in front of me. They are yours, made in your image, created to reflect your glory throughout the earth. Sometimes we need that reminder. So God, I pray as we enter into this time of response that we would 
be honest with ourselves, that we would be honest with you. And in all things, you would be glorified here today. We ask this in your name. Oh 
God, what a special time that we can look into our hearts and God, you can reveal to us uh, the blind spots in our lives. Lord, I have so many. I have so many spots where as I was sitting here listening to going down the list of all the different areas, there's one in every single category. Oh God, create a pure heart in me. Lord, give me the ability to repent and to turn to you. I am not worthy of being in your presence, but thanks to Jesus, I am. And God, we pray that we would take a look inside of our hearts. We would root out the sin in our hearts and the idolatry in our hearts, and we would turn that worship to you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Sean. Serving us well with the word. Um, if you, you're confused, perhaps by something that was communicated, please, uh, we want, I think this is, uh, this goes in part with what we believe the Lord has been speaking to us as a church, going back to Christian's message about community, and then our, the encouragement we heard from Kerr last week on just intentional, intentionality and investment toward one another, this is part of that, and we want to be uh, we want to be sensitive and uh, obedient to be known and to know others. But it's by grace we do that. There's no judgment. There's no ridicule. There's no demeaning or dehumanizing. This is where we hold this treasure in jars of clay. There's brokenness and there's things that happen in us and to us that we just need the support of the body of Christ continue on and until we're waiting for the ultimate relief of joy in God's presence forever, unhindered joy in his presence forevermore. So we look forward to that day. Um, so thank you for those that responded. Thank you for allowing us to, to know particularly how to pray for you. And so we're going to, we're trusting the Lord with that. Amen. We're trusting the Lord as we move forward and uh, join together as a church uh, you know, just a couple of reminders for you. Uh, one would be the study on anxiety called Knowing God's Peace, which starts in a few weeks. Uh, we're going to host that at my house. You can sign up for that. Just follow the QR code. You can sign up online, and we have a, a book for you. If you've already received your book, you can begin working through that. We want to start a week out, uh, which would be two Wednesdays from now, uh, just to be able to do get a, get a week in before we show up to the first night on the 16th. Uh, and also our, our students, the 215 Tribe, is uh, starting a, a Bible study in, in Ephesians here in a few weeks. So if you know somebody that would be, you'd like to connect with that, you can seek her 
uh, and they can help you get connected with that. All right, let's remind ourselves of the glorious commission that we have in our obedience. Jesus, who has all authority, and he says, it's all mine. I give it to you to walk in that obedience. He gives us that, that grace and that faith. But we're reminded, because we're fickle people in jars of clay, that we need to be reminded. And so that's why we remind ourselves uh, each Sunday. So let's be reminded of Jesus' words. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. My God bless us.